being a student. Yeah, but he's doing it in an ironic fashion. Possibly. Yeah, um, yeah. same disposable income. I would not walk along Barnamore Road because they have dodge that attack people on Barnamore Road. Named Past. Hector. No, no, there was a, a staffy that got loose. Is that right? Really? Attacked, uh, attacked another dodge and a person, a human person. A human being. Yeah. They've uh, kept this out of the news. Uh, well, yes. But no one died. Because, yeah. Oh, right. If it bleeds, it leads. That's it wasn't a sexy story, then. No. No, not you, need, particularly. you need at least one death. Like Roy has said before in the podcast, if a uh, uh, a man attacks a dog or a man eats dog, that's much more interesting than dog eats man. You, you uttered those words almost I think verbatim. I think man bites bite, rather than bites. eats. Bites. No, I think, I think well, biting is I think the man first eats action of an dog. Eat. That leads for the entire week, doesn't it? I think dog eats man does as well, though, to be fair. <laughs> I think dog eats man is a story, yeah. How do you like the fudge? Um, I haven't got to the fudge yet. Have some. Is, is that an order? You yeah. should get I, to I it I before I eat it all. Right, I need to do some speaking, so, so my, I'll have a small bit. My, I asked for Christmas, I asked my parents for books. I only ever asked for books. Oh! Sorry, and that was a fudge-related uh, cry. I made... So you asked them for books and you got fudge? Yeah, so I made the crucial mistake of... We've discussed previously that my parents still go on the internet. They do. Right? They sit on the internet and wait for something to happen. No, no, they, they're not on the internet. <laughs> they are currently not on the internet, and then they turn on a button... And they are on the internet. And then they, when they turn that button off, they're no longer on the internet. So I asked for books that were largely only available on the on the Amazon website, which I don't know if you've encountered it. It sells books and paraphernalia. Yeah, so but, so they didn't get them because my mum and dad don't shop. They don't really understand the nature of... Like they would never shop online. Right. They, I think they think that people are stealing their bank details, which is often true. And they would never, ever do any of their shopping online. So they went. my dad went into Waterstones in York on his one day of Christmas shopping that he does. And if the books weren't in Waterstones in York that day, then they weren't appearing for Christmas. Uh, However, next to Waterstones in York, there is a... Well, the one thing there is lots of in York <laughs> are fudge shops. Uh, so the, he unwrapped it on Christmas Eve. We had, we had them around on Christmas Eve. It was a pound of fudge. And I don't know if you've ever felt a pound of fudge, but it's too much fudge. So I want you to eat the fudge so I don't have to eat it because it will kill me. Um, it's lovely, but it, but deathly. Well, thank you. And it provides just a, a small basis upon which we are going to draw our culinary delights for this programme. So it's our starter. Yeah. It really should be our finisher. It really should be, yeah. But it's our starter. It should be a, a what do they call it in French? Plus fours? No. Petit four. <laughs> Petit four. Petit four. Plus fours. <laughs> That's golf, isn't it? Plus that's golf attire. That's a type of trouser. You'd imagine that the word plus would kind of ruin that because yeah. it would be plus. Oh, exactly. Plus four. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. And rather miraculously, despite some of us having to be in both Portugal and London this week, and indeed Salford, uh, we will be maintaining the count at four via the magic of editing, or as some people uh, like to call it, lying. Ain't that right, Chinch? Yes! This is the first example of our audio contortionism. There will be many others, but so as to not labour the point, you'll have to figure out where they come yourselves. I'll be honest, it'll be incredibly obvious. Oh, and while you're here, Chinch, a belated Christmas present for you. This has been sitting underneath our Christmas tree. Now the Christmas tree is gone, but this still remains. Pour moi! Uh, yes, right. as they say in France. I'm not very good at opening presents, but this is great. If you could, if you could <laughs> make it nice and quick. I'm please. trying, I'm trying. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. In you go. In you yes. go. This is yeah, your... Yeah, this yeah. is probably the finest Christmas present you'll ever receive. Really? In mid-January. Re- what am I doing? Yes. You're I'm getting go- in there. Come on. Come on. What, come on. What's happening? Use those fat fingers and get oh. in there. Oh. There wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, no. Wait. Hang Stop on. Stop teasing me. Wait this a minute. Is, this is nearly... His unwrapping ah. of presents is nearly Take as bad that. as his wrapping of presents <laughs> on Sky Sports News. Here we go. We'll come to that later. Here we go. Wait a minute. Is it... Wait, no, it's there. Look at that. That is glorious. 
That, that is, is that, truly glorious. That is designed by my fair wife, Gemma. Wow. Beautifully presented with a pink handle, the chinch set piece menu mug. We've all got one. Not available in shops because they cost a fiver a go and I'm not prepared to give anybody <laughs> stuff for free. Chinch, happy Christmas. Oh, that's extraordinary. Thank you so much. I'll probably drink from this. As we all will, because we are all very, very proud of our set-piece menu. Official merchandise mugs. Yeah, but you're not drinking from my receptacle. No, You've got your no, own got ones, haven't you? Good, because there's are, no way you're you drinking this. They are personalised. Yeah, they are. Yeah, I didn't realise you'd colour-coded the handles in the inside so that we wouldn't get mixed up even though we've got our names on why the am outside. I, why am I... It's like Reservoir Dogs. Why am I Mr Pink? Because you are the most manly and confident with their sexual identity. Am I? Yes, so I am. So you like that, your yeah. mug? I do, I love it. Steve, do you like your mug? Love it. Rory, do you like yours? Yes. Excellent. So all of this means that you'll be hearing from me, Hugh Ferris, Stephen Wyeth, Rory Smith and Andy Hinchcliffe while we enjoy some of the food that my wife Gemma and I, Rory's wife Kate and him, this is again going to be slightly convoluted, um, Stephen's partner Katie and him, nothing from Chinch and Nikki, um, very gratefully no doubt received for Christmas that we all simply haven't had time to get round to. So it is time for re-gifting there is on offer not only the fudge that Rory has already explained about, uh, pate, crackers, chutney, shortbread biscuits that came in a tin shaped like a penguin, um, and of course, Christmas cake, courtesy of Rory's parents, two aunties, one mother-in-law, and one of Gemma's former work colleagues as well. Is your auntie's Christmas cake up to its usual high standards, You'll be by able the way. to find out very Excellent. shortly indeed. Excellent. Chinch is particularly fond of the Christmas cake. Isn't that right, Chinch? Yes! Strong work, Chinch. You can enjoy a piece of cake and we'll be back with you shortly. He eats so loudly. You know, we need to keep him at arm's length. Now, in an effort to keep our scheduling conflicts away from the set-piece menu spotlight, on this episode, we intend to make you, our fine listeners, the real stars. Our most recent special series, Spectacular, um, that's trademarked, by the way, uh, was about football's relationship with the media. And we had an overwhelming response both on Twitter and email, at setpiecemenu and setpiecemenu at gmail.com if you'd like to get involved. So as some of the correspondence represented a continuation of the conversation, we thought we'd reflect it on this week's pod. And then that allowed us an opportunity to also bring in some of the other people who have got in touch over recent weeks about a myriad subjects. Uh, so consider this the shout-out episode of Set Piece Menu. This is one of those re- really lazy episodes that Family Guy and South Park do every so often, where it, it's kind of, let's do three stories. Quite a lot more work has gone into it than, than usual, Rory. You might be surprised that's, that's to bar. know. That's a low bar. Well, yeah, but still. But <laughs> we've cleared it. Yeah. And that's all that matters. <laughs> you, you, you have to clear it to move on to the next Absolutely. stage. We're through to the next round, but this is just like the food. This is essentially re-gifting. Um, We wanted to start with what happened following part one of our media series, which was about bias. And Stephen, who was the social media correspondent of this operation, Mm. uh, noted immediately a flood, a flood of responses on Twitter. Hence, there's been an awful lot of work for you. Yes, and also for For me. (laughs) All right, okay, yes, for the listeners. Um, And we're going to focus the first part of the conversation. via some correspondence about Spurs. So, thank you to Mark Lynch and to Peter Walden, and also to Paul Gross from Jerusalem. Um, and we they, have a in Jerusalem. We have a listener in Jerusalem. That's amazing. And uh, they start uh, thusly. So, Mark says, as a Spurs fan, I do have two examples of media bias against us. We posited during the programme that there wasn't any bias in the media in relation to the accusations that bias that are made by fans. There might be some bias, but that is uh, certainly of a secondary level and also as per this conversation, by the by. Um, So Mark says, as a Spurs fan, I have two examples. 
Number one, the Leicester fairy tale. Spurs were painted as the baddies and the subsequent rewriting of history with Spurs apparently losing the title despite never being top and being the only side uh, to challenge. We'll come on to part number two uh, in a moment because part number two also is where Peter Walden comes in. Do you think that narratives are sometimes set up so that they favour one club more than the other. And bearing in mind, we spoke in the first episode of our media series about the fact that we tend to like bigger clubs. This would go against that. Well, I think this is a fairly clear example of, and I don't want to be dismissive of what, of what Mark said. I think we're going to spend the entire programme being dismissive, so oh, okay, don't worry, you can go right ahead. Uh, is the thing that the media is most biased towards is the story, the best story. The media will contort itself to tell the best story and you actually have a very similar complaint from certain people at Manchester City about the 2014 title race when Manchester City probably with some justification feel they didn't get the credit they deserved because the entire the entire media not the country the media was obsessed with the narrative surrounding Brendan Rodgers' Liverpool and their title challenge in both cases it is not to do with anyone hating Spurs I don't think Spurs were presented as the baddies in 2016 particularly I don't think it was a good versus bad thing I think the they romance the- of Leicester like the romance of Liverpool was so irresistible that the media focuses on that yeah in the in the Tottenham Leicester example I mean Tottenham were the bigger club and they were the one in place to derail the fairy tale of Leicester coming from nowhere to win the title so they just happened to, to play that role I had a couple of conversations with people on Twitter along similar lines who who offered up examples of where they believed there to be media in bias in the media this was this was one of them it depends what your definition of, of bias is this wasn't a bias against Tottenham yeah. it was just simply a preference if there is such a thing from the media of, of one particular outcome in terms of the story but then that's crucial like how does the how is this bias manifesting itself so if you're presented with this, this potentially amazing fairy tale of Leicester you want as a journalist you want to tell that story it's a great story for you to mm-hmm. tell it's doesn't necessarily build careers particularly but you know it's a chance for journalists from all over the world to go to Leicester and tell this incredible tale so how is that, that manifesting as a bias against Tottenham it's not like anyone was saying we don't want Tottenham to, Tottenham to win the lead it's not like anyone was saying Tottenham don't deserve to win this it was purely and simply that the focus was more on Leicester because Leicester was Spurs winning the title if that had been Spurs going for the title against Man United Spurs would have played the Leicester role of course it's just because Leicester was the better story same as Liverpool was the better story in 2014 where I do agree with him is I don't and it's not to do with bias isn't the right word but I don't know how it's been allowed to take hold that Spurs blew that title yeah. That's not that that has that is a narrative that has taken hold. I don't know how, but I would suggest that the only place it's taken hold, f- the, or the place that kind of gave it its genesis, are fans, because they felt like they were they no, were not, the closest to win. When, when not, that was a season that every big club was told that they had failed, allowing Leicester to take advantage of their failure. So the team that are closest to Leicester will naturally and perhaps incorrectly be given the title of the biggest failure. To an extent, yeah, there is there is a sort of con- a weird. Twisted logic there, but no, I th- more. I love twisted logic. It's, it's, it's what I base my entire career on. It's a, f- it's a, it's been driven by fans singing who came third in a two-horse race. That's what, that's where that has come from. Spurs. I've never ever written that Spurs blew the title. I've never said that Spurs blew the title. I've never thought Spurs, Spurs blew the title. What Spurs did was challenge for the title. It's statistically not correct to say that Spurs blew the title no, because they were never ahead as Mark yeah. says and, and this sort of idea that Spurs are in some way chokers yeah, has been so. manifested by that season I think they won nine successive games yeah. and then drew with uh, with West Ham didn't they and, and there was a suggestion that that was the moment Spurs blew the title they were already several they were, they were, there behind, were several yeah. points adrift at that stage despite having won nine successive games there was one game I think where they could have gone top with the same number of games played but it was way way back yeah. in the season so no the, the, 
he's right to say that there is the idea that Spurs Mark, blew the title. Mark, Mark, Mark. Mark is right to say that, that the idea that Spurs blew the title is wrong, but it's not rooted in bias. I think it's just... There's another... Uh, not to bring it back to Liverpool, but the, the Rafa facts thing is another quite good example of that, where we have, as a football culture, and it's not just the media, does it fans buy into it as well, we have extrapolated, we've confused correlation with causation with the Benitez facts thing. There is a, the story goes that that year was 2009, that that year Rafa gave this crazy speech and Liverpool blew the title. Blew the title. They didn't. Liverpool won about 11 of the last 13 games. They just so happened to run into a Manchester United team who won 15 in a row or something. You didn't lose from February onwards. So you can maybe maybe say that what Benitez said maybe inspired United and backfired in that sense. It didn't, didn't sort of cross Liverpool anything. Liverpool's form towards the end of the season was superb. What cost them the title that season, if anything, was Andre Arshavin having the greatest game the, anyone has ever all. had. <laughs> but it's in, it is interesting how these things that aren't true can take hold, but it's not it's not rooted in bias. I don't think. But it just shows us again with with supporters this, the sensitivities that you feel as a football fan is that sometimes you might you know, as Mark was saying there, he feels as though that was a bias against his team. But I say don't think it was bias. It was simply. Where was the better story? And it's not to say that he's he's delusional on on yeah. nuts or anything. It's just that it's not quite the cause. The cause of it isn't quite what he thinks it is. So on to part two, which um, is something that Mark brings up, and also Peter Walden at Baltimore Spurs has added to. So this is what Mark says. Um, I keep hearing pundits such as Wright, Shearer, Mills, etc., uh, claiming that Spurs have to win a trophy and that Pochettino's away record versus the top six is poor. He says so is everyone. And why do Liverpool not have to win a trophy? despite spending more. It's interesting. We've already brought up Liverpool. We'll have an opportunity to do it more. And Peter says, the Poch has to win a trophy line bothers me to no end. If he was keeping us at third slash fourth consistently with no title challenges, he would still be hailed. But since they've overachieved, he now has to win something. But again, that isn't bias. That is about what, what is the next step in that club's development, in their path towards what they're looking to achieve. For Liverpool that next step is winning the, the title, winning the Premier League, winning the title in the Premier League era for the first time. Liverpool, Liverpool at least have those those other trophies yeah. to fall back on. Well, but they haven't won a, they've only won one League Cup in 10 years. I, 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 I'm inclined to agree with that to an extent. But Spurs haven't won the title since, what, 61? No, they haven't, that's true. And Liverpool are obviously more successful both in recent years and overall than Tottenham. I, I agree with it. I, I think that this whole Poch has to win a trophy yeah. thing is, is nonsense. I think you could make a case that certain clubs in that big six, just everyone else has just ignored. Uh, <laughs> apart from Leicester when they're winning the apart league. Apart from Leicester when they're winning the league. <laughs> are, um, are, not, are sort of set different targets almost. And what counts for one doesn't count for the other. But there's a great example with this with, with Arsenal going out of the FA Cup. That we, we were told, and that by we again, sort of football as a whole, some some media, some fans, some pundits, whatever, what, whoever it is, it's not kind of newspapers write something and everyone follows it necessarily. But we were told that Arsenal winning the FA Cup didn't really make it make, make up for not winning the league. What three times in four years? You know, yeah. they, they might have won the FA Cup, but you know, who cares about the FA Cup? But before they but, won the FA Cup, it was Arsenal Vega hasn't won a trophy. Hasn't won a trophy. Then he won a trophy. They go out. They go out, <laughs> they, no they go out and win win a, tro- win a trophy three times in four years, and everyone says, well, that that, that trophy doesn't count. Actually, I'll have you know. And then they get knocked out in the third round of the FA Cup, and everyone says, "Well, this is this is a complete disaster." <laughs> After four years of being told, "Well, actually, that 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 trophy doesn't matter." So, again, I don't think that's to do with bias. I think Steve's right. It's it's to do with kind of where people think, and people in the media think that club should be going next. So, th- there is an argument to be made that, that what Spurs need now is, is love is to win a trophy, <laughs> sweet because love, because it. it 
loads of managers stop it you <laughs> you're in a silly mood Loads of managers will say that once you get that winning taste, that's kind of yeah. the final ingredient to, to mounting things like proper, not in, to mounting title challenges, Spurs have done that twice, but to winning bid, bid trophies. So maybe they do need that. You can make that case. It's not to do with bias. It's not that Pochettino is, is being treated in a way that others aren't. It's just that he's been set a target that it manifests slightly differently to the target the others have been set. And some bad news for Spurs fans. This isn't going to stop. And in fact, it's only going to get worse. All the time that Harry Kane is scoring numerous goals every week then the pressure for the club to to match his achievements by winning trophies is, is only, is only so going you're, to you're saying that basically for it to stop Pochettino has to win a trophy <laughs> no, no I, I disagree with that if Spurs win the FA Cup this year I guarantee that won't, won't make a difference the, the, the narrative will switch to Pochettino needs to win the league, the league. Pochettino needs to get to the semi-finals yeah. of the Champions League but is that unfair is that it's not I don't think it's unfair I th- all I think it is is a manifestation of the fact that that Journalists like fans believe that clubs have to keep moving forward. We, we know that Tottenham and Pochettino are good enough to finish in the top four on a regular basis. So that is no longer going to be an achievement within itself. It, it, it is a great achievement. You know, it was, it was a good enough achievement for Arsene Wenger for many seasons. But it, it isn't going to be enough to prevent the, the, the fact your, that they're going to have to move forward at some point. That's not your next step. But crucially, and where, where it comes back, comes back to bias, it might be slightly different in the, in the, the target that Spurs, is, Spurs are set. But everyone is being set targets. Everyone is being told you have to be doing this or you're failing if you're not doing that. It's different for every club. But ultimately, there is, there is that same pressure on, on all of the teams in that top six. It just The words that, that are used are different. The targets that are set are different. So it's not, it doesn't reflect a bias. It just re- reflects a demand almost, which is something that teams who are a little bit newer to the top six, such as perhaps Manchester City, sometimes struggle with the scrutiny and the expectation. So we've mentioned uh, Spurs and we mentioned Liverpool in relation to Spurs. Let's mention Arsenal in relation to Spurs, shall we? Uh, Paul Gross from Jerusalem has got in touch and he recalls that Rory insisted that of the big six, Spurs fans are the most reasonable and realistic. Perhaps the last 10 minutes has suggested otherwise. Uh, Maybe in general that's true, says Paul. As an Arsenal fan, however, and then he puts in brackets, I should stress a very fair-minded, non-hysterical Arsenal fan who has no truck with my fellow supporters complaining about MOTD, etc. The proof of the pudding being eaten with that one, Paul. (laughs) I can tell you it is definitely different when I engage them in conversation. You can see where this is going. And in my experience, there is no set of fans that demonstrates greater delusions of grandeur and a larger gulf between their rhetoric and the reality of their club's achievements. Tottenham fans, in my experience, talk as though their team is Manchester United. Any appeal to logic or facts falls on deaf ears. I wonder if it's simply a symptom of being the supporter of the less successful team in a big club rivalry. Hello, Bear. Fancy being poked. <laughs> that is just a dig. That's not a, that's not a constructive point, is it? I think, I think, is there any semblance of a point in there? I think where there is something really interesting going on in that, in that missive. Was it an email, that? It was uh, an email. Be, too long to be a tweet, surely. Yes. It would have um, been one hell of a thread that would have been massive. lambasted massively. I, I love a thread, but that's a long thread. <laughs> um, I think that the fact that so many fans can now engage with fans of other clubs on social media in a way they would not have done previously has changed the nature of fandom, particularly what I think has been called by other people who are cleverer than me, performative fandom, that the idea that you have to be seen to be being the best fan you can be. Because Paul is an Arsenal fan talking to Tottenham fans, that perhaps he's getting a slightly more belligerent kind of front foot assessment of Spurs. All fan, all clubs have got the vast majority of fans are really normal and self-deprecating and really funny, 
and they, they love their team, but then they're fully aware of its flaws and they can have a perfectly sensible conversation about it. The vast majority of football fans are not dribbling maniacs. The problem is you go on Twitter and you've got lots of other fans of other clubs seeming to laugh at you with those awful, awful like football banter accounts. There's these accounts that pump out these terrible jokes that aren't funny and then put the cry laugh emoji after them because that signifies that it's a joke which is like exclamation marks it's I'm telling a joke for people who are not telling enough nobody should ever put more than one laughy face in response to no. or when telling a joke about something it is it, it is a scourge on society if the exclamation mark is laughing at your own joke which it always was which is why you should never use it when you're writing the cry laugh emoji is laughing at your own joke even though it is not funny and you are not funny but they have they've all got like take note humans 345,000 followers it's astonishing how how, how dim-witted people can be. If you put people of, who support different teams into an environment in which they can argue with each other, then they will eventually talk themselves into a point, into, into a sort of frenzy. I don't think that is... I think all clubs, the vast majority of fans, are hugely reasonable, except on Twitter. And I was just going to add that if, if Paul, as an Arsenal fan, is talking to Tottenham fans, th- those Tottenham fans are going to respond very differently to him exactly. in an argument over football than they would do if they were talking to a, a Manchester United or a Chelsea fan because of the intensity yeah. of the rivalry. Yeah. Let's move on to Andrew Everett, asandy79 on Twitter, um, who said this, whilst agreeing with there being no bias for or against any club, might there be bias towards events that favour a newsworthy event from occurring? So this probably draws together something we've said already on, on the show today, but we also went on to say on the media podcasts. Example, last season, the possibility of Arsene Wenger leaving equals an emphasis on Arsenal in crisis. We've mentioned Arsenal in crisis uh, a great deal, but specifically, and Andrew says this, a commentator, pundit or journalist represents event as supporting evidence of a selected narrative or thing they want to see happen because it's newsworthy. So this is slightly broader than the top six element. It is simply a narrative that is good for business. It is good for their, their sense, you were saying about Leicester earlier, good for their sense of being there when this happens. Yeah, I think Andrew makes a, a relevant point, but I think he, he just maybe is coming at it from, from slightly the wrong angle because it's not a predetermined narrative necessarily it, it, from a commentator's point of view and probably from a, you know, from a newspaper reporter within the, the, within the stadium watching that game's point of view, your narrative develops as the story goes on. So very often, you know, that last, that last minute winner flying in for the unfancy team, well, you know, that is a story that you can get behind. So yeah, that, that narrative, but you don't, you don't make your mind up about that before the game, but you might make your mind up about it in the final 10 minutes. Where he's right though, I think is that sometimes events are, he's, he's broadly right that as when we said it, Vendor's not a great example because Arsenal, that Arsenal crisis thing has been happening for 10 years and all the reporting on it was was just reflecting what was happening. Like, what is the media meant to ignore the fact that competing groups of Arsenal fans are hiring planes to fly banners? Now you meant to just be like, mm, I don't know about that. That's, we might be being, being biased if we report that. You, you, that story happened and people followed it. I would put money on the fact that if you interviewed 100 football journalists and commentators, 99 of them would say, do you know what, I'd really rather never have to talk about whether Arsene Wenger should go or stay ever again, because it is the, the most boring story in football. But where he's right is that there is, there is a natural bias towards what is most newsworthy. And where he's even writer is that we probably do interpret events to... Fit, the narr- fit that narrative. There's an element of confirmation bias, isn't yeah, it? It's, or, it's, or you it's kind of, making the fact or the yeah, event fit. Fit the story. Yeah. And you probably retrofit it to an extent as well. So you looking back, you say, well, it was, it was here that the title was won and it was here that the title was won. And I, th- I don't think that's particularly harmful. And I don't think it's to do with bias. It's to do with trying to 
art sort of pieced together a story out of lots of random threads. And storytelling is a noble art, and we shouldn't uh, necessarily uh, disparage it as being something that uh, revolves only around one person's desire to sound better it's, or to, to look it's, better it's when they write. The, you know, that's how humans humans function. We function through story. That's that's well established sociologically that we want we want things to be stories. You actually see the best example of that. You see them in, in certain newspapers that I won't name, the Mail, the Times and the Telegraph, quite a lot, which are, they, they, are, they follow the format. This, this is stolen directly from Jack Pitbrook of the Independent, so I won't, I, won't, um, I won't take credit for it. They fit the format, how such and such did such and such, and then did such and such. So it takes the format of how Troy Deeney banned fruit and strawed hundred dollars it's that it's kind of taking one minor detail and giving it this vast explanatory power and this if you read loads of newspaper stories sounds like a parlor game they, no but if you read lots of newspaper stories they all follow that pattern and it's it's here is a detail you know how i'm just gonna name loads of what for play how sebastian prudel sebastian prudel <laughs> Let's go. Let's, no, let's, let's go. Right, okay, let's yeah, let's yeah, go around. Yeah, okay, right, so yeah. I've said Sebastian. How Sebastian Prodel, Steve, changed his hairstyle, Rory, and grew six inches. <laughs> really? yeah. um, this this is this is the genesis of something we will do in another podcast because we're enjoying ourselves so much, and it's not sugar fudge related. It is a little bit. No, no, I don't think it is. I'm, I promise that it is. We'll call it the set piece menu. What? Let, let's think of a pithy title. How set piece menu. Invented a game and changed the podcast world. That's right there, we go. That's what it's called, and we'll do. It. We'll, we'll get a large, a large hat full of things, and we'll just, we'll just pull them out, and we'll do it for like an hour, and people will be very entertained. Daily Mail feature generator. Yes, quite right. Let's, um, uh, let's move on to, to this one. Funnily enough, I, um, when we were talking about bias and the, the conversations followed thereafter, I was talking to one fan um, who said an example of media bias in favour of a particular club, for example, was one journalist on the telly saying that a team should have won a penalty when pretty much everybody agreed that it wasn't a penalty. And I suggested that wasn't media bias, that was just somebody being wrong or having an opinion well, no, but that was, it, that was misplaced. And it, and it moves us on, and, and the point that you're yeah. going to make will, will also uh, be relevant here to what John Henschel uh, tweeted in. Uh, Great pot on bias. Interested in your thoughts about journos who are so obviously biased. I get the individual thing. I'm a City fan. I know we think there's a conspiracy against us. I'm not sure there is, but it's good pub talk. But there was also... A, um, a big call for, for us from Twitter to, to name yeah. Steve journalists who we who we know to be biased. Yes. Well, there was <laughs> name <laughs> and shame, like an old News of the World feature. But we, we weren't able, and we're not going to do that, partly because we took the moral high ground <laughs> in part one of this it series. undermine. Um, by saying completely. that, you know, we didn't believe that, that journalists were inherently biased towards one club or another, but they might be biased towards a story. So although... A lot of the same names cropped up regularly on Twitter over the course of the last two or three weeks. It's to say, yeah, we take your point, but so-and-so is obviously biased in favour of Club A or you know, against Club B. I don't think we're going to get into mudslinging or finger-pointing, but yeah, yeah, maybe there are one or two you know, one or two out there who contradict the, the general point we made. Yeah, I think it's, we, we, it, we don't want to sound like we're sort of sitting up here in our high castles and not and refusing to name to name people. But, um, the, the, but the person that gets named a lot, you would suggest it is a bias towards an individual, yeah. not to a club. But so that that's really important. So that that in that specific example is 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 a, is a really extreme example, but. It's, it's actually more indicative of the type of biases that we all have and, and that exist in every journalist and, to be honest, in every person. And the reason why you told the Roberto Martinez story uh, yeah. in, our, in our series? It's because you, you do develop a loyalty to 
to the people that you like and the people that you know and the people that help you. And I think to an extent, one of the problems with, with the talk of bias in the media is that a lot of what, what is seen as bias is actually, or, or agenda, is actually, is actually just opinion. So there's things that I think about football that I have gleaned from people within football who I know and like that people would, you know, to some fans, probably you, could, you probably could call them biases, but they're just they're just kind of firmly held opinions. That and so yeah, I I frame the world to fit them, which is kind of how we all get through life, rather than just saying, oh, it's all chaos. Isn't this brilliant? The example that we're talking about is is a really extreme example of that, and it it goes too far, and it's problematic in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that the main victim of it is the person in the centre of it himself, to be perfectly honest. But um, I think every journalist does do that, but it's not towards a specific club. It's to do with, it's to do with kind of what you think is right, almost. And, and also personal loyalties. Personal, lo- you want your friends to do well, but you shouldn't. And it's that's a really hard balance to strike to to be able to. And the Martinez story is, is a good example of it. You have to be, be be prepared to say, "This is my friend," but I think this is yeah. you know. But but that doesn't mean that he should be beyond criticism. Beyond criticism, or I have to abrogate my responsibilities as a journalist. You, you still have to be a journalist about it. The other big one there is loyalty to agents. There's a lot of journalists who, I think, probably give certain players' agents an easier ride than others, and that's problematic too. And which is why it can't just be the responsibility of the journalist. The, the person absorbing the information also needs to take responsibility for, for trying to have at least some concept of, of where that information has come from. And, and to treat it accordingly. You can't take everything, you know, you can't be literally black and white about everything you read. You do need to understand the circumstances in which that piece of information perhaps has been delivered. You have to understand... We don't live in a perfect world. You have to understand that maybe people... Not every opinion people have is biased. You have to understand that. I, I don't know. I'm a little bit more idealistic than you, maybe. I think that journalists should do all they can to, to remove all of those biases within reason. Because you can't... But then we'd only need one newspaper and one television channel. That's true, yeah. Which newspaper would it be? The Express? And <laughs> the Straight away, I'd take that and Channel 5. Um, we must move on. And Rory, you're going to um, have uh, a few moments to enjoy the last three pieces of fudge. I'm not eating and, all of them. And Jesus. to dive into any of the other um, uh, re-gifting paraphernalia that you would like. And uh, you will return, won't you? Yes. Lovely. Rory will now dive headlong into a beautifully presented hamper full of pate. In the meantime, we'll get to pundit-related bias questions with Andy Hinchcliffe, who has successfully plucked every last raisin from his plate following a deep dive of his own into some Christmas cake. (laughs) (laughs) It's the way you loom over me. It's really off-putting. When when I loomed over you, I took your last raisin off your plate. Don't touch my raisins. Steve has also had Christmas cake, and he loves the Christmas cake. I think for for a number of years, you both have been able to enjoy some of the Christmas cake that has been provided to the family by my Auntie Penelope. It is my favourite Christmas tradition now. I wait for you to return to South Manchester after Christmas bearing Christmas cake. Have you tried Christmas cake with a slice of vintage cheddar cheese? Everybody does it, Chin. Just don't make it sound like it's new or... Is it not new? (laughs) Seriously, it's not new. Christmas cake and cheese is a big thing. Together? Yeah. In a bap? Caught you out there, haven't I? The bap really did shock me. As most do. Um, So then, Chinch, the first uh, correspondence comes from Phil Tate, who, when discussing media bias on Set Piece Menu, he says, why no mention of influential players or managers who seem to escape criticism? Do you think that there is or are managers or players 
who perhaps for reasons of nationality, for reasons of personal relationship, which is something we're talking about on the show uh, today as well, that tend to get an easier ride. So rather than there being a bias against somebody, there is a bias towards somebody Mm. from pundits, particularly in this case, because the personal relationships within football as players often then become significant when they are former players. Yeah, you tend to think the bigger the coach or the manager or the player, that there'd be more scrutiny of what they say. And there possibly is in in certain instances. But in other cases, we're maybe saying that relationships that they have exempts them from heavy criticism of, of what they actually say. Interesting. That is a very interesting point, Phil. He's made a very good point there. And it's something I'm going to look out for a lot more. To how, how enduring are those relationships? Because clearly there are a generation of former players who are now becoming pundits. Yeah. And they often, I mean, there's often been a, a, a club-based reason for people to complain about there being too many Liverpool pundits. We've yeah, spoken yeah. about that before. Too many Manchester United pundits will be an argument that will be made over the next 10 years or so. Then there'll probably be too many Manchester City pundits because yeah. of the, the nature of their success at the moment, Chelsea, etc. So it... it do, if you all grow up together and then become pundits together, do those relationships endure or do you find yourself able to just look at the, look at the job and to not really care about if that's your mate? You have, to, you have to look at the content. I always tend to, in many ways, when someone's talking is look away because it can get a bit distracting thinking, oh, this is, this is a really big well, former player. That's because you're I mean, socially awkward. Yeah, that's I'm socially awkward. Yeah, I can't make eye contact. But if, if you listen to the content, that is the really important thing. And sometimes it's kind of lesser known players will make really good points and are really good pundits, but are maybe listened to a lot less than these big superstar names, which maybe who don't have the, the, the content. So I, I'm always a big one for that, saying, well, just because it's Frank Lampard or Steven Gerrard or Rio Ferdinand, does that mean what they say is going to be brilliant and more incisive than somebody else? And in many ways it isn't, but maybe they get away with it a little bit more because of their status within the game. I think that's the balance that uh, the television companies, radio and even newspapers to an extent need to find, isn't it? The, the status of the former player that they are employing to give their opinion is obviously a big factor, but they need to have that eloquence about their delivery and their analysis yeah. of the game as well. And, and you do, you see some, some pundits who exist and survive solely on their reputation as a player and what they achieved as a player. Yes. And others who have worked hard at, at the craft and have, have learned the ropes and perhaps worked their way up, who perhaps didn't achieve such brilliant things as a player, but have established themselves as fantastic pundits yeah. like... Thank you. Uh, thank you. Very well. It's well, a selling point. He, he was it? pointing at somebody behind yes, you. He was, yes, he was. Out the window. Yes. Who's out the window? Danny Mills has just Danny Mills does yeah, live yeah, like yeah, he does, yes. in Harrogate. But it's a selling point, isn't it? If you've yeah. got a really big name and you're trying to promote a game, saying so we've got these guests, but then it becomes not necessarily, you can relate it to your career, but you're there to try and give insight into what's going on in front of you. It might be Huddersfield against Stoke. And if you're Frank Lampard, then suddenly you have to say, well, it's not about Frank Lampard. This is about my ability yeah. to decipher what's going on on the pitch and show people and tell people stuff that they can't see that's when you have to become a really good broadcaster use your knowledge from what you gained as a player but you can't always go back to saying well when I played in Champions League's final this is what happened because you won't have any relation to to what you're seeing in front of you so you've got to become really good at the job and that's the challenge for these big name players and that's why I'm a bit more critical when I, I see these names and I watch them work I think, can you tell me something, show me something that I can't see? I don't care who you are and what you've achieved. It's that ability to show people things that they don't obviously see. Which is why perhaps Huddersfield against Stoke isn't the game yes. for someone like that. 
I, I, I think it's even more that they're the games that they should be doing because that's when you, if you're trying to learn the trade because you can't you come out of football you can't instantly be brilliant at what you do you do have to learn and hopefully you watch and, and listen to other people and how they play that's what I did when I started is picked up so much from other people and learn how to do the job yeah Hugh you, you're I'm, okay I'm, I'm pointing at me I'm not yeah. pointing at the person who's sat in the kitchen you, behind me you did me, teach me saying. an awful lot about the uh, the mechanics the of nuances, this business the, the nuances the that type of involved. thing involved yeah how not to dress that type of stuff is that why you continually indulge him with this podcast is this yeah. effectively the payoff have you noticed that yeah yeah, the, yeah I do indulge you I, I do think that is the case but yeah so the, the, the bigger the name I tend to the, not going to bite on any of that I, by the way but then when, when suddenly you get someone who has had a, a stellar career maybe and then is really good and can you tell you things that you can't see then I'm really impressed but it doesn't have to be just because you've had a good career it doesn't make you a good broadcaster or, or a good pundit Phil's point is a good one and I don't want to get into the habit of, of shooting down good points but I suppose coming back to the issue of bias that is a little bit less relevant to a former player who has a particularly strong association yeah. with a club you know Steven Gerrard with Liverpool Frank Lampard with Chelsea you know we were talking a little bit more from the, the journalism side of, of media th- throughout the, the, the context of the, the, the media series but you, you, you want a balance, don't you? you want, if, if you have a, a Chelsea pundit, Chelsea are playing Liverpool, you yeah. want to make sure that's offset by a Liverpool pundit so there is a sense of, of fairness on the screen or on the radio. And we, we're much more forgiving as well. Yeah. So, for example, we, I don't mind that Gary Neville likes Manchester United still. Yeah. I understand the genesis of that emotional interaction with the game that he's watching. I don't mind about that. He is able to offset that mm. by also being convincing, well-prepared, articulate about other clubs too. And that's why he has been able to, for example, with Manchester City fans, with Liverpool fans, uh, garner their respect for what he does. He doesn't have to pretend he doesn't like Manchester United. We've just been talking with Rory about the journalists who perhaps overtly favour either a person or a club. Yeah, That is something that rubs people up the wrong way, understandably. Yeah. But we, we can't expect Jamie Carragher to not like Liverpool. But we do expect them to be able to counterbalance that with the kind of expertise and analysis that makes them a good pundit, not just a former player who yeah. is cheerleading. You, you can't go into any game with an agenda and saying, well, I'm a Liverpool fan, this is the Liverpool game, I'm going to say how great they are. Because what happens if they play badly and are well beaten? Then you have to become, you can't be, you've got to assess what's in front of you and do the job honestly and fairly. You can't say, well, Liverpool were terrible today, that's why United beat them. If United outplayed them, you have to do, do justice to the game that's in front of you. And that's what I think with Jamie Carragher, Gary Neville, they very quickly learn that they've got these close associations with the clubs they played for, a passion for their clubs. But you have to step away from that. It's, and when I do City or when I do Everton, not that I'm harder on those two sides, but I'm really conscious of the fact that if I say something about how good they are or how poor they are, people will jump on it and say, well, you would say that because you play for City or Everton. And I'm very keen to, to have a balanced view. If City are brilliant and score five, I'll say so. If they don't play so well and the opposition are better, then that's what I've seen and that's what I will say. So you have to step away from your kind of allegiances that you build up as a player and become a really good pundit. This from Dixon Genuous, he says, I think there's very little bias with pundits. Ian Wright, for example, might seem biased because Arsenal support expect him to say nothing but good about them. He can't be honest without seeming like he's slagging them off. It's the same with Shearer and Newcastle. Um, He goes on to say, a massive issue that I have with the media is a basic misunderstanding of rules on way too many occasions. I genuinely think entry-level refereeing courses would make some broadcasters better at their job. Chinch, do you know the rules of association football? Absolutely right. There's things that I've learned about refereeing decisions, offside decisions that I did not know 
before I went in to do the job. That is that is a really good point, and a lot of pun. I'm sure they don't understand the basics of. of, of referees' decisions and have been caught out. I think generally sometimes a broadcast can be caught out by something. And when a player steps off the pitch, I think it happened at Man United recently when I think Daley Blint stepped off behind the goal, but he's considered to still be active, even if he's inadvertently stepped off the pitch. I think a goal was scored and there was a big complaint about being offside, but Daley Blint is considered to be still be active yeah. on the on the touchline. So he was actually playing everybody onside, but he'd stepped off the pitch and everyone was up in arms saying, well, if he's off the pitch, he can't be playing. But apparently... He's considered to still be part of the play and involved in the play. So the goal rightly stood. And I think a lot of people caught out the pundits were, even in the trucks, yeah. the directors were saying, why is this goal stood? It's wrong. And it wasn't wrong. It's absolutely right. But they didn't know the rules of why the goal was actually allowed. And uh, as we've talked about on this podcast before, when I was a teenager, I did do my referees training yeah. and I refereed youth football to try and get a better understanding of, of the laws of the game. And it, I had forgotten that one. Yeah. But of course, as a ref- one, one thing I do remember from that time is that as a referee, the, the players need your permission to leave the pitch that's right. yeah. and return. Yeah. So if, if and, and that's why in that case, his momentum had taken him off yeah. the pitch, but he, he is still active. part of the game. He's Absolutely. Still active, yeah. yeah, but th- that's, that's a really good point. I think it would really help. Um, it should be maybe part of, of if you're going to be a regular pun, that you need to clearly understand. You think it was just about the game, but the referee and, of course, decisions that are made are a huge part of the game, so you should be across that as well. From a commentator's point of view, I know there are a lot of commentators who know the rules perfectly yeah the great skill is to not jump to conclusions mm-hmm. and that's a difficult thing to do within the heat of, of a football match you see it from fans you see it from players you see it from pundits as well don't you but let's not always assume that the referee is wrong yes analyze what's happening let's work on the basis that the referee knows the rules better than just about anybody because mm-hmm. that's his job and give him the benefit of the doubt until proven otherwise. Yeah, but that, that was a major, and that really kind of opened my eyes because I was, you know, the guy I was working with was very clear and he, he, he knew that straight away. So he said, if that had been me, I knew exactly the situation with Blinhead, I know exactly why the goal was given. I wouldn't have gone down that road. But a lot of times you can get maybe commentators, co-commentators wanting to have really strong opinions and, and go down a certain road because they want to be strong. But actually, if you're wrong, you've got to be very or careful be absolutely sure about what you're saying before you say basing it basing that opinion on the wrong piece of information or the wrong or what you, what, what wrong you perceive to be right absolutely yeah. yeah at Chinch so far you have been absolutely splendiferous you'll be back with the soccer story later on won't you yes enjoy the pate Rory I've only been eating the fudge well if you could get onto the pate because it's a much more balanced diet what after fudge after fudge you're insane you were the first person to go into the fudge I couldn't resist try the pate I need rid of it we will now move on to some of the other subjects that came up in our media series uh, we'll start with Neil Clark Old Burnage Blue on Twitter um, Neil Clark says fan media is supporters teams podcast when fans feel their own club are restricted in what they say and the normal media don't mention or feel that there's an agenda against the team and Jasper Entwistle also says and name checks Ask Blog Anfield Rap, Knees Up Mother Brown, Red Cafe, etc. Far more important and influential than a club website. Charlie Morgan, um, I personally never visit my club's website. Just never crosses my mind for finding news. I still use traditional media. Uh, Their Twitter page also doesn't offer much in the way of engaging content. Lineups and score updates are about the only useful thing. And and also let's uh, end with Rory as we began with Rory from Mark Lynch um, because it's useful. Um, As a Spurs fan, he rarely uses the official website besides just buying merchandise um, as a Shrewsbury fan similar because he gets to have two clubs by the nice. looks of things um, and we've spoken before about how important it is to yeah. have at least two clubs um, it's similar even though um, he does watch weekly video interviews which 
speaks to, I suppose, the kind of content and where the content is available beyond the website. He's more likely to follow match reporting from local media, fan podcasts, etc., as it's honest and critical. He doesn't want to be spoon-fed. So this is a reaction from fans who say, actually, I don't necessarily go to my club's website because it doesn't give me what I want. I'm perfectly aware of the offering and I know and I can differentiate between what that gives me and what I need. Yeah, so that's really interesting. And I think the one thing we didn't cover in the original three podcasts enough was was the rise of fan media because th- there are so many incredible stories out there. I mean, I know that I've known the boys from the Anfield Rap for a long time. What they've done is, is from, from a purely kind of thick-rimmed spectacles media point of view astonishing their model is something that major publication houses are kind of looking at and thinking right how on earth do we do this Ask blog there's some brilliant content in the fan the fan specific media I, I do the ask cast which is every so often with with ask blog which is a really good detailed arsenal podcast they exist these exist for every pretty much every club right down to shrewsbury I think lower down the leads where you're not getting any coverage at all in the national papers, which is I mean, lower down the leads, from seventh in the Premier League downwards, <laughs> uh, then it's crucial, and it's crucial to have that 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 sort of scrutiny and analysis and that in-depth kind of really, you know, well, really really knowledgeable assessment. The the crucial thing, though, with it is it's that family thing, isn't it? It's, it's, it's not an outsider coming in and saying that your dad's put on weight. It's your sister saying your dad's put on weight. That's the difference. That's why fans like them, I think, because they can criticise with the legitimacy of not having an agenda or a bias because they're fans. And, and, those, or, and, and, and the and consumers or, will understand that and they will treat it with reverence and deference. They might not agree, but they'll know that their heart's exactly. in the right place, whereas a lot of people, I think, with the national media or even the local media think their heart is not in the right place. And that's the crucial difference. They have that trust, I think. We hold our hands up. That was perhaps an area that we did overlook. Yeah. You know, the, the fan media. I suppose we looked at the, the we social... We don't like talking about other people's podcasts. It's just <laughs> not social. allowed. Well, it, it, it reaches a lot... You know, it goes a lot further than that, though, doesn't it? It's existed, you know, in, in, the, in, in the shape of fanzines yeah, for yeah, decades yeah. And, and more recently, you know, online forums and message boards. Uh, message boards. The podcast thing is perhaps a little bit uh, of a more modern extension of that. But they obviously have their place now within... Within the the media climate, I suppose again, as we were just as we've said earlier in the podcast about you know you've got to view mainstream media through the prism of where those particular stories have have come from and what the the narrative behind them might be. I suppose providing you're also looking at uh, fan media in the same way and understanding that that is a very very one-eyed approach mm-hmm. to the coverage of that that club and and the the beliefs of the people who run those publications then then they 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 deserve their their place of course they do and one thing that we didn't uh, also mention is when local media butts heads with the club because the club feels that local media isn't being as supportive as they feel they should be mm-hmm. i think the teesside gazette in fact andrew glover who who does declare that uh, he works at the Gazette, but um, he, he informed us about the, the difficulty the Gazette have had with Middlesbrough. Middlesbrough have banned two of the journalists, not the, not the paper, but two of the journalists who they feel have been writing stuff online um, that disqualifies them from attending matches, press conferences, interviewing the manager if they do attend the matches. Um, so there are times the Newcastle Chronicle has been banned before yeah. by Newcastle because of... Uh, Mike Ashley disapproving on some of the coverage. Swindon. It was a, yeah, the Swind- also- I think Swindon completely banned the advertiser from from going at all for for a while. There's, there's, a, there's quite a lot, and it's it's amazing how many 
how many it's amazing how many happen at clubs where you think well basically that's your only yes. outlet and and those those outlets are supposed to be supportive yet critical and in fact the balance of those two is exactly why they are the most important yeah. um, resource particularly for fans who as we say from 7th in the Premier League down but there's two things that go on one is that the fan, the club see the local paper as, the, as a rival for content so you, you don't want people going to the local the Swindon Advertisers website if they they could be going to the Swindon website that's that's the first thing it's a business thing but if we're saying that fans can discern between the two fans will still go yeah. regardless no, no, oh, of the I'm club's not, efforts I'm not saying that the clubs are doing the right thing I think the club the clubs don't I think they're misreading the media landscape completely because I don't think what the, the fans want is fans don't want propaganda they're not stupid so it's it's a flawed plan but I think that's why the clubs do it and the other is that um, the clubs do seem to think that the access they can provide to the local team is this this chip to be played to make sure you get the coverage that you want and it's that's been a really interesting shift in the last 20, 20 15, 20, 30 years where the, the clubs now feel that as you say that local papers should be essentially a fanzine that's not what the local papers are there for at all but the clubs effectively effectively use access to players and to managers to bribe the local the local paper into being nice to them and that's not what local papers are for I remember when I first started working in local media in local radio the, the, the belief was always that if you lost the local media that was a sign that something needed to change you know they would stand with you probably longer than the national media would be but if there were negative stories about the club appearing in the local media then that was really the wake-up call for the club that perhaps something was up and needed resolving so that's why I find it so extraordinary that a club like Swindon just just to use that example would ban its local media rather than perhaps recognizing that if there's criticism coming from an organization that is so close to the club then perhaps they might just have a point that's the atmosphere that football's in now, isn't it? Where any any criticism is seen as heresy, and and clubs are incredibly touchy about anything that they don't like, and it it's really surprising, but simultaneously totally expected. Final word on the subject of bias: a, a text message that I received from somebody who works within the football media industry for a, a major broadcaster, and he said, "Anyone who thinks that we have the time and wherewithal, and this is based on having listened to the podcast, by the way, to construct an organisation-wide conspiracy against their club, should see how badly we organise a night out." <laughs> I also have friends outside of this podcast. Really? Well, yes. I thought, I thought I was the only just, one. Just end it there. I mean, and it's I, shocking. I also have contacts in the uh, in the in the media world. And I received a message from somebody who told me something I didn't know, which is we mentioned the BBC gossip column in one of the pods about yes. about the media and how I was a bit baffled by how popular it was. And it seems to me that that's kind of that is the most read football page on the internet. Did you know? I didn't, and I've worked in newspapers for twelve years. That newspapers send the BBC gossip column their transfer stories the previous night, so they can be included, and they then complain if they're not. I didn't know that. I'm not entirely surprised. Um, before you go, Rory, just a quick one to satisfy those who wanted to know if the Alexis Sanchez shot for Arsenal against Chelsea, um, which mm. hit both posts but didn't go in. Mm. Um, lots of people asking, how high uh, did that strike on your joyometer? I would say that is literally all I want from football. 10 out of 10? Oh, beyond. Beyond 10 12 out of 10. Out of 10 uh, 12 out of 12. Almost as good as your performance on this podcast. Rory, go and enjoy your big power meeting in London. Thank you. So with that, he is gone. And miraculously, Chinch is back. Hi. Soccer story coming in a second. But first, more joy correspondence. This has been probably the subject upon which most people have decided to get uh, in touch. Um, 
So here we go. We'll just have a little bit of fun. I the love final this. Ninety-eight percent of what we do is basically grumpy. It's <laughs> complaining. It's being frustrated. It's the one the time we do something positive, it's light and shade. Yeah. It's all about Every, contrast. Everybody <laughs> wants to have their say. And we'll start with Michael David at Michael C B David, who uh, reminds us of the Jack Wilshire goal for uh, Arsenal against Chelsea. We've already mentioned the Alexis Sanchez shot that hit both posts, and how that uh, made most people froth at the mouth with its uh, incredible levels of joy. Um, but Michael says that Wilshire goal reminded me of another great obscure thing that I love about football: when a smashed finish rolls along the inside roof netting. The inside roof. It's quite niche, but can you picture the goal and then imagine it cresting, but then rolling along the top of the net before eventually... That's unusual. It's glorious. I agree with Michael. If you can picture the goal now, you'll know what he means. Uh, Yeah, I had someone else on Twitter who pointed out that that ball somehow managed to touch all four sections of the netting. It clipped the post on the way in, went round the inside of the net, sort of crested the top came back down the back before rolling around oh. the left hand side of the inside I think you should I think you deserve a bonus point for that that's a bell surface <laughs> surface <laughs> area surface area of the net touched by the ball on scoring should be the decider at the end of the season rather that should than count double difference. that they should get two goals for that <laughs> uh, Mike says at Mike91C hello Mike I'm a big fan of the ball not going out of play for more than three minutes commentators hoping for a break in play that just won't come players not really sure what's happening Chaos, <laughs> says Mike. I think that also came off the back of the Alexis Sanchez shot that hit both posts in that Arsenal-Chelsea game because the ball stayed in play for ages and, and went end-to-end for, for quite a long time relatively to the game of football. And of course, the commentary team, you could tell, yeah, they were yeah, desperate yeah, to see yeah. a replay. You're like, surely that went in. We, you know, we need the goal line technology. It must have crossed the line at some point. And there was like almost willing the ball to go out of play so that they then could get the replay. But then you got the director in your ear saying, we're going to go back to it, we're going to go back to it. And you think you just put the ball out of place so we can go back to it. And it just goes on and on and on. So you're desperate and you're kind of formulating what you want to say. But like another minute and a half's gone by. I love the idea of Alan Smith <laughs> sprinting down from the gantry and booting the ball into the stand just so they can roll the replay. By which time he wouldn't have got back up to the gantry in time and it would have rolled without him. Um, uh, this one, thank you for all your joy correspondence. We, we genuinely uh, do enjoy seeing it. So do keep it coming. And we're never going to stop talking about this, which is uh, an essential part of the conversations that we have. Um, this brought uh, one of our regular correspondents a great deal of joy. Mark Cole. Thank you, Mark. Uh, it may be dated by the time of the next recording. <laughs> it is, but we don't care. We, we won't tire of it. Um, but we need to hear, says Mark, Chinch discuss his Christmas present wrapping contest that he had on Sky. Now, this happened two days before Christmas. Chinch was doing his final final um, seasonal bow for Sky Sports News, which if you are... Actually, if, you, if you're not from Britain, it's, it's often in a lot of other countries, so you might have seen Chinch on there. Part of the contract, you have to pop in every so often, don't you, and do a little bit, but uh, never before have you been asked to go in and have a Christmas present wrapping contest against none other than Paul Gary Rowlett <laughs> Merson. <laughs> Could you please oh. please explain first? Well, you can tell us later what actually happened in the contest. But mm. when you arrived yeah. and you were told the plans for your, oh, this your is, stint. This is where the problem kicks in because I was told Rob Wooten, who does the presenting, he knew this was going to be happening about half past 11. We're on for two hours, 10 till 12. And so I said, so what's the content today? We're going to talk about the Premier League, talk about the Championship. He said, oh yeah, there's this, that and the other. We're going to kind of maybe encapsulate the year and highlights. And he said, there's this other thing that we're doing as well. And he kind of 
mumbled on and I said that kind of rung alarm bells what, what other thing are we get well, Paul Merson last year did this Christmas gift wrapping th- what <laughs> half eleven you and him are going to go head to head in it they just they just kind of sprung it on me at about five to ten. So there's no way. That was why I'm at ten s- o'clock we cut to you and you were looking like white as a sheet. Action. <laughs> and I thought, and then she said, "They've got this. They've got this present wrapping expert to come in. At golf clubs and uh, what else? A dumbbell. It was all sporting items. Sporting wasn't it? items. But Paul Merson's clearly not seen a dumbbell for many many years, has he? Hey." He's not seen the inside of a gym for many, many years, that lad. But it was just sprung on me. But they knew, clearly, it's not something that you'd really want to do, but it's going to happen. Well, so I threw myself into it headlong. I was um, I was in the BBC studios whilst you were in the Sky Sports studios. Yeah. And I made sure that as many people as possible gathered oh, around the you? television uh, to watch, uh, oh. watch this thing unfold, uh, no pun intended. And um, Chinch, your lack of enthusiasm was... Astounding. It wasn't. I, I was incredibly. Was I? Did I not come across as enthusiastic? You, no, you came across as enthusiastic, yeah. but it was so forced that through gritted it, teeth, it's hard to. It really yeah, made the day. Yeah. But what happened and who won? It was well. What they wanted to do. It was a little bit staged as well because there's going to be three three items. We did a football, a dumbbell, and a golf club, a, a three wood or something. Um, so what they wanted to do was have it all on the final item. So it was always going to be one all going into the golf club. Right? <laughs> but they were running out of time. They were running, no, it's true. They were running out of time. So they were just they panic And she was trying to help me with my golf club. But I didn't need the help. She kept putting in bits of sticky tape. Competitive to the and, last. Yes. If you're going let to me, let me do it, Paul Merson's been allowed. They gave us the smallest table in the world. It was like a pedestal table to wrap things. A golf club. Two golf clubs. Wrapping paper. Seller tape on a little tiny table. It hadn't been thought through, clearly. You know, they didn't do it seriously. Who won, Chinch? Merson won. Yes, there we go. Two That's why procrastinating because Merson won. How many no. presents did you actually wrap for any of your family members or friends this Christmas? Just go. Um, none. There we go. None. I love, the, I love the idea that you were running out of time. And so, quick, quick, we've got to rerun that Antonio Conte <laughs> press conference. Get on with it. It was dreadful. I think everybody agrees who watched that it was indeed uh, dreadful. Um, a couple of other items before we come to the soccer story. Uh, they're both chinch related. Um, Footy Book Review uh, says, when I listen to Andy Hinchcliffe now, all I think about is that bloody tactics board. And then he's, <laughs> he's fashioned a hashtag. He thinks he is Pep. And finally, from Darren Smith. Thank you. At DS underscore Thunder. Uh, we'll only think of a raging chinch every time I see Tunnock's tea cakes <laughs> from now on. If you're with us on the last episode, you will know that the soccer story was all about Tunnock's tea cakes and that rather beautifully brings us to this week's soccer story I was just going to say we've only incredibly heard from two angry Scottish people because we referred to Tunnock's tea cakes as being an English delicacy apparently oh, oh is that right sorry Scotland. in that case sorry. we yes. withdraw that and immediately replace it with the word British uh, <laughs> never mind Jack and Ori what a soccer story this is when uh, Andy tells us a tale from his playing days with all adult behaviour and libel worthy details removed now, this is, I had a lot of injuries in my career. I've probably told you about the numerous injuries. Really? Yes, knee injuries, ankle injuries, back injuries, because I was such an athlete and put myself through Achilles it. injuries. Achilles injuries, too. Um, no, muscular. Ne- never had knee. Never pulled never the muscle, hand. strangely, but just broke every other part of my body. I was thinking that they're scars all over your body, but actually yeah. they're tattoos. They're tattoos. But this is an injury I picked up, which was, well, it was, it was a worry, because it was two weeks before the FA Cup final in 1995. So this is the 9th of May, 1995. Everton, battling to stay in the Premier League, are away at Ipswich, the famous Portman Road. 
and an injury I picked up. It was it could have been a devastating injury. It could have cost Everton dearly in the cup final two weeks later. As as is my want, <laughs> I, it could have done. Un- Unzi would have done a fine uh, absolutely, job. Absolutely, and, and, and did. I was dreadful. I had an injection in my leg. I couldn't feel the bottom half of my leg. Anyway, that's another story. I went hurtling into a challenge. Uh, sliding challenge. I love the uh, sliding challenge on a wet evening. And I stood up and I felt a searing pain in my hand, my right hand, particularly my middle finger. Looked across and my middle finger was at 90 degrees. So I'd clearly dislocated the top of my middle finger. So I'm starting to feel a little bit woozy. Uh, the referee hasn't noticed this serious injury, so I have to start waving and say, the ball's going out of play. Referee, referee, can you come look at it? And the referee, I think it was, we're not sure who the referee, we're going to actually open this up to people, aren't we? Find out who the referee was on this occasion, because he wasn't very professional, in my opinion. I went off over to the referee and said, I've got an injury, I need it treating. And the referee's words, well, they weren't even words, he just went, ooh! <laughs> That's what he did! And just said, get off, get off, you need to get off and get it treated. But my finger, and then they had to get the physio on, pop my finger back, put it in a bit of a splint, just to see me through the final 20 minutes or so. I couldn't take throw-ins. I was renowned that, for my relatively short throw-ins. and primary job. Have you ever tried to take throw-ins with a, a terribly sore, dis- previously dislocated finger? It's pretty much impossible. And again, I think I missed the next game. We played Coventry, apparently, in the next game. Apparently, and yes, you did. We did. <laughs> but I didn't play, did I? Was I kept out of the match? No, I didn't actually have a dislocated finger at the time, so I had dislocated it. Was I rested for the cup final? Just for, because because I had a dislocated. Nothing to do with my legs or my feet or my footballing ability. Because my finger had been dislocated. So the injury bulletin prior to the game would have had Andy Hinchcliffe doubtful and yes. finger, finger in brackets. Finger. Yeah, but it was the so referee. We're not sure who the referee is. We should, what was the referee's noise? Ew. That's exactly what he said. I don't think he's medically trained, clearly not. It's a slightly camp version of what he what he probably did. But yes. if you do know the name of the referee, essentially, if you're able to Google quicker than we're able to whilst we're talking, uh, let us know the name of the referee. Uh, Ipswich against uh, Everton. 9th of May, May 1995. 1995. It was a 1-0 win. Paul Rideout scored the winning goal and we stayed up and then what, won the cup final. One thing that I have managed to discover on Google is that Everton effectively finished that game then with nine men. Why, why else because did somebody else pick up a serious injury? 73 minutes, yeah. Stuart Barlow replaced Daniel Amakachi. Yeah. And on 87 minutes, he was showing his second yellow card. <laughs> really? Blimey. <laughs> so, with, so that's why I had to battle on. I, I uh, should really have come off. Selfless behaviour. And probably asked to come off. But Joe Royal <laughs> would have said, you're staying on, Tears big fella. But both substitutions had already been made and yes. you had a player... It's the kind of story you hear in the Marines, isn't it? Minutes. That's the kind of thing they'd carry on, wouldn't they? They'd carry on. Yes, I think M- carry M- on. Nab has described <laughs> described moments you like that. You could write a book on this story. Many fold in his. But stories. I was. I'm not. I'm not the best with injuries and stuff like that. But it was. And actually, my it's never really recovered my knuckle, so I'm not very happy with the the physio department. Les Helm, this question's got to be asked there. My finger's still a bit dodgy. What was the referee's noise again? Ooh. At setpiece menu or setpiece menu at gmail.com is how you t- is how you can get in touch. Please do subscribe, share, rate, and review. As we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Uh, thank you to Steve for being here throughout. Thank you to Andy and Rory for being here almost throughout, and to you for listening. We'll be back with another setpiece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Did Doc Irving not get involved with Doc? Doc Irving would have been there probably in the showers after the match because <laughs> he tended to like a shower, even though he'd done absolutely nothing during the course of the game, which is odd, isn't it? Do, do you think that maybe rather than playing? 
in the 1995 FA Cup final as mm. being your, your career high point, that actually being so significant <laughs> that you were rested for the league game before the FA Cup final might actually have been the point at I, which you peaked. I can't, that's funny how... That, I, I'm sure that didn't happen. I must have been involved. I must have been on the back. Clearly, very important set pieces and throw-ins which was severely compromised. So maybe they're just giving me that extra week to recover. Was David Unsworth not quite as good at taking throw-ins as you? Well, he had, he had all his digits, whereas I was severely compromised on the right hand. So I had to favour my left hand. So I got the spinning throw-in. That's where it would have changed. I can get that spin on it with my left hand dominating. Starting to bore me now, Chinch. Am I? Yeah. It's no, very it's, important, though. Throw-ins. When is a spinning throw-in been? You know when you get a bit of swaz on the ball and it's very... You know, defender goes to head it and he goes zipping off their forehead. And when the ball is turning... Are we going to start using some, some genuine football terms at any point? Well, some swaz on it is a, is a technical term that all footballers use. Swaz. Swaz.